This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Zoll Medical and Zoll EMS and Fire. In one, engine four, truck two, truck ten, ambulance 82, battalion two, fire 1020 North Main, help is on the way. Okay, welcome back to Chicago's Bravest Stories. Our guest today is uh, probably might wind up being our most famous guest, don't you think, Steve? <laughs> it could be. Uh, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, and writer-producer from Criminal Minds, among other things. Also the co-host of the Best Case, Worst Case podcast, one of the first ones I've ever listened to, Jim Clemente. How are you, Jim? Good. How you doing, Vince? And uh, it's nice to meet you, Steve. Nice to meet you, too, Jim. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on for a while, and I was kind of, I was trying to come up with some elaborate way to tie the two podcasts together, but I was a guest on yours, and after talking to a bunch of people who listen to our podcast, they're so into the, like, true crime podcasts and stuff like that, and whenever we start talking about podcasts, they always go to a true crime one, and I always turn them on to you guys, because, like I, like I said, yours was one of the, when I first found out about podcasts, it was you, and um, uh, the other uh, gentleman that I was with when we went out to California, appeared on your podcast, was Jimmy O'Connell. Mm-hmm. And right. former guest on Chicago's Greatest <laughs> Stories. And he said, hey, my sister is on a podcast and stuff, and we're going to have Maureen on here at some point uh, very soon. Because uh, I'm going to hit up the all the best case, worst case uh, hosts and see if I can <laughs> get him to come on. So, uh, awesome. yeah, thanks again. I know you, you guys are getting into a bunch of different things, but I just kind of wanted to go through the list. The one that really intrigued me that you got going on recently is you got a series uh, about the Unabomber. Yeah, well, uh, we've done a number of series on Audible. So they're Audible Original Productions. They're documentary series. And I recently did one. I don't know if you were talking about that or you're talking about the TV series. I'll have to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I first stumbled upon it uh, with Audible because that's the Amazon product. Okay, great. So, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And so that's the audio project. And the TV project is on Netflix. And it's called Manhunt Unabomber. But that is, that's a, a fictionalized version of what happened, whereas the audio project about the Unabomber is called Where the Devil Belongs. And that title comes from a statement made by one of the last victims of the Unabomber. She's actually the only surviving victim who, who was there when her husband was blown up by one of his devices. And she was holding her 18-month-old child. And her husband said, well, where did this package come from? And she said, he just came in the mail, and he started to open it. The child wriggled out of her arms and took off running towards the living room. So she ran after her and then was blown into the living room as her husband opened the box. And she crawled back in and literally held him together as he died in her arms. And when she spoke to the judge at the sentencing, she said, Your Honor, I want you to bury that guy in the deepest, darkest dungeon you can find because that's where the devil belongs. And that's where I got the title from it because I thought, given what he had done, the 
monstrous nature of what he had done, but that was the best title for this project. The Audible project is actually a documentary series, and I interviewed the investigators who investigated it and profiled it, and like Jim Fitzgerald and Kathy Puckett, who, who actually were in the trenches on the task force that was trying to take down the Unabomber. And then I interviewed the surviving family members and some of the actual surviving victims of the Unabomber. And what I was just struck by is that Ted Kaczynski targeted some of the most fascinating and and amazingly gifted people, these these minds and these souls that were trying to help humanity. I mean, one of them was a doctor who was helping parents of kids who were born with Down syndrome. He was helping them, and Kaczynski tried to kill him. Another one was a guy who loved trees and forests, got a job with the forestry service so that he could make sure that that people weren't over-exploiting forests, that companies weren't, and that they were replanting forests. And Kaczynski killed him. And so when you, when you actually talk to these family members and you see the devastation that he caused over 17 years, it's really a, it's just a horrific case. But like I said, the people that I got to meet when I did that audio documentary series for Audible, uh, they were just fascinating. Um, well, Jim, did you, in researching that, and I, uh, did you come across any information about uh, Ted Kaczynski was part of the CIA's experiment with LSD and uh, that operation where they were actually recruiting people to go to a brothel and they were dosing them with high levels of LSD? Well, um, the... I'm trying to remember the name of the project. Yeah, it's Operation Midnight uh, that, that he, something, right? I, I can't remember it. Off yeah, the top that's of not the one he was part of. Um, he he was part of a different one. Um, I'm just going to have to look it up on my computer because <laughs> I don't have it in my brain right now. Sorry. They had so um, many different, for that whole entire project, there were so many different names. Um, they named one after the secretary that the CIA inherited for some other projects, but you go down that rabbit hole, you're going to spend a lot of time there. Yeah. I mean, basically he, he was at Harvard and, and he basically was involved in a psychological program that was run by the CIA. And, but this program was more about challenging people and making them feel worthless. That's, that's literally what they were doing. They were, they were asking them to uh, speak about or write about serious subjects, and then they would take everything they wrote and sit down across from them and just tear it apart and just say that they're worthless and, and basically you know, make them feel completely and utterly, um, you know, like a failure. And, and this would go on for months, though. This went on for months, yeah. yes, it did. And it was very intense, and when I remember the name of the project, I'll, I'll get back to you on it, but <laughs> uh, 
I'm sorry, but it was one of those weird names. Yeah, they just it, it's kind of a a weird name. Um, but the thing that I did, you know, I, I, you know, I I interviewed so many people around Kaczynski, and for example, his neighbor, who just wrote his her name is Jamie, and she just wrote a book um, about having grown up next to Ted Kaczynski. Her family's cabin was was on her grandfather's property and Ted brought, bought uh, a couple of acres of property on the same ranch. And it was only about a quarter mile from door to door, you know, through the woods. And when she was a kid, Ted used to come by the house and he, a couple of times he gave her little gifts and, you know, like he, he carved out a wooden cup for her. He gave her a little doll, things like that. And, and so she, when she was a child was, you know, she thought he was interesting and different and, and kind. But then one time she was hiking through the woods and he was coming the other way on the trail. They turned a corner and almost ran into each other. And he was really intense at that moment. And, and he, she said he, he seemed like a caged animal and it scared the hell out of her. And so she just said hi and turned around and ran all the way back home. And she said from that moment forward, any time that she knew he came around, she would hide because she got this intense feeling of fear just from being around him, just from being around him. And that was her, you know, her life-saving intuition trying to protect her because clearly he was, he was in the middle of his 17-year-long murder spree um and he was a serial killer and she was alone in the woods with him and it may have been that he was on the way to or back from exploding a device you know practicing a device in the woods or he was about to deliver a device either way she almost you know she stumbled on him and it it obviously scared him and but his reaction was incredibly negative to her. Well, you talked about um, serial killers and there's so much, there's so much to cover with you. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to get it in uh, as much as I can here. So if, if I move in fast, please, Jim, just slow me down. No problem. I, all of it is so fascinating to me. And like I said, I was honored to, to be, to come out by you and actually meet you in person. But you worked it on great the, menu too. <laughs> it, that was that was a, a great time out there. Uh, you worked on the DC sniper case, right? Yes, I did. So the project about the DC sniper is called "Call Me God" because one, when we profiled the case originally, we said this guy sniper has a god complex. Um, this is why they try to take life from afar, from above. Uh, no connection to the victims. They just want to act godlike, and that tells us a lot about his personality and psychology. Um, we also said that you don't want to challenge them, and unfortunately, Chief Moose kept challenging him, and and the mayor and the governor and all these people were getting on and challenging him. And of course, he responded by proving his superiority. Uh, they said the streets and the schools are safe. The next day, he shot a kid on the way to school. So. There's a lot to be learned from that case, um, but they also left a tarot card at the scene uh, of that shooting, and 
on it, it said, call me God. And so that was sort of a reinforcement of the profile at that point. And there were other things in it that Jim Fitzgerald saw, who was my partner in the FBI. We, we went to the academy together. We were assigned to the New York Bank Robbery Task Force together. And then eventually we were assigned to the, the Behavioral Analysis Unit together. And we both retired out of that unit. And Jim started forensic linguistic profiling. And basically, he, he was able to take the words on that, on that tarot card and some other notes that were left by the sniper. And he said that he sees somebody from the Caribbean, somebody who's young, and somebody who's looking up to the cops, but uh, disrespectful. And uh, most likely, you know, has uh, grown up around reggae. Uh, so he saw all that in the writings, and and everybody else had already agreed that the guy who did this must be in his, you know, mid forties with police or military training and experience, because it's hard to shoot six people in a row in one day and not have adrenaline pumping so much that you you screw up along the way yeah he didn't he was calm cool collected in in planning and executing these shootings so so we knew that 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 the shooter was older but he said not when he's writing this and i said well then either when he's he when he's planning and executing he's completely calm cool and collected but he, he compensates when he writes or for the first time in u.s history we have a sniper team and you know, nobody believed it because, you know, snipers don't play well together. They have a God complex. But I said, well, if one of them is really old and one of them is really young, and the older one's sexually abusing the young one, he can completely control him. And everybody thought that was crazy. But in fact, 10 years later, Malvo came out and said that Muhammad had been sexually abusing him the whole time. So uh, profiling really worked. And uh, that, was, that was a really good case. Demonstrate. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I heard um, you say that some of these shootings were hitting really close to home for you, right? Wasn't Absolutely. It, well, wasn't this in your neighborhood, yeah. uh, one of the shootings? Well, a couple of them were. Um, one, The one at the mall was like right in between my, my mine and my brother Tim's house. My brother Tim was also an FBI agent, and this is one of the few cases that we actually worked together on. And we arrived at the scene of the shooting at the Michaels at the, at the Spotsylvania Mall at exactly the same time because it was like equidistant between our houses. I literally lived one street off of the street that this mall was on. And and then uh, a few weeks later, Tim's wife was getting gas and, you know, he told her, go back to the house. Don't be out there. Literally 10 minutes later at that gas pump, a man was shot pumping gas. He stopped at that gas pump outside of Massaponics, Virginia, because he didn't want to go near D.C. where the shootings had been. He unfortunately stopped at the gas station where they must have been laying in wait. Now, my sister-in-law had a, you know, a big van, one of those 15-passenger vans that's taller than her. So that would have blocked her from being shot. Whereas the guy who did get shot had a regular sedan, and he was shot and killed at that spot. 
Hey, hey, Jim, just out of curiosity, how did you guys figure out that this guy liked reggae music? Because it says, this, the, the tarot card said, this is for you, Mr. Police. Mr. Police is a, is a line used repeatedly in reggae songs. Okay. And, and it, it, it just, you know, you just said, you know, you, you, are what you read, you are what you're experiencing in your life, and you communicate that way. You can tell if somebody grew up in the 60s reading the New York Times because of the language that some people read. And this is what they, what Jim Fitzgerald's ex- expertise is in. I can't claim that same expertise, but he does, and he's able to regionalize uh, somebody's idiolect, that's an individual dialect. And in fact, he was the critical investigator in solving the Unabomber case because a lot of people think that well Ted Kaczynski's brother turned him in. Ted Kaczynski's brother did think that maybe his brother was the Unabomber, but he was the twelve one thousand two hundred and seventh person who turned somebody in. Twelve hundred and six other people thought their brother or their uncle or their neighbor was the Unabomber and turned them in. So Fitz had to go through all of them, but he Fitz is the one that said, "This is the guy, Ted Kaczynski." And was that the first time that the linguistics aspect of the BAU was actually used um, in in that situation? Yes, in the Unabomber case, that was the first time, and then. Um, and then he used it again in, in a number of other cases. Well, we, uh, we kind of wanted to use this to, to tie things in between you and us. Can you, I, I'm not sure, I, I, I haven't come across it, but have you worked on any big arson cases? Arson cases. Hmm. Like from a, from a profiler's were... standpoint, what, if you had to... Um, if you got called on one, what would you normally be looking at? What's the profile we, we, of yeah. an arsonist? Yes. Well, typically, um, arsonists, they, they either have a, well, uh, let me put it this way. We, I've worked a number of arson cases. Um, and in my experience, arsonists either have a trying to stop uh, building uh, save the planet motive or they are people who feel uh, inadequate, uh, unheard. Uh, they want to make a big splash. And many times, arsonists will, will stay in the area to watch the response. They like to see the red trucks racing and the sirens blaring and the lights flashing. And they like to see that all these people are fighting this massive fire that they created with a small match or a can of gasoline. So to them, it's important to witness the result. If if the only way to witness it is by being there, then they will likely be there. If they can witness it because of news coverage, they'll watch the news. But it's really important that to them that this is the reason they're doing it. They're doing it to feel more powerful. They're doing it to to actually experience the results of what they did. And, and I know that we have uh, some of our listeners, um, you know, most departments have a guy who's kind of tasked with arson investigation. 
uh, within the different divisions. And mm-hmm. outside of that, like, is there anything that you could t- let them know that could help them during their arson v- investigations has a criminal profile? Like, just is there a tidbit that, hey, guys, you should be looking for this? Or is there there's something that you can give them? This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is also brought to you by Tim Ryan, a local 2753 guy with Remax Properties Northwest. Yeah, uh, 2753, he's uh, he's one of our local guys um, up here by uh, Northwest Side, uh, Northwest Side. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about before, you know, we always like to, we always like the idea like having, you know, having a fireman, having one of our guys that can uh, kind of lead us down the right path. And um, from what I hear about Tim Ryan, Mediocre fireman. <laughs> Phenomenal. Phenomenal realtor. realtor. Oh, my God. Phenomenal realtor. This guy. <laughs> but you know what? He's paying his dues, so you can't argue with the guy. So God bless. Thank you, Tim, for your service. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. <laughs> if uh, you guys want to find Tim, where do we find him, Vince? Give him a call, 773-578-2464, or... Yeah, make sure to check him out. You can you can also email him at tryanrealestate at gmail.com. That's an easy one. And closed with Tim at um, OnlyFans. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. At, at, that's Instagram. That's the Instagram handle, right? I, I don't know Instagram very well. So yeah. let's go with it. Try Instagram first. Yeah. If you can't find him on that with that handle, right. then go to OnlyFans. Yeah, don't. Don't try only fans. (laughs) (laughs) And Tim, you are a terrific fireman. (laughs) Terrific. And if you need a terrific fireman, you can call him at 773-578-2464. Tim will take the stress out of buying and selling properties. You're not going to get a salesperson. You're going to get somebody who understands you as a first responder, somebody who's been there. It's not about the, the money with Tim. He yeah. sincerely wants to take care of uh, our community and take care of you guys. Yeah. So look we, him we've up. We've talked about him before, uh, or we've talked about before, like, you know, Tim Tim is the kind of guy, when we, when we talked to him on the phone, like, his highest priority was taking care of first responders. So, you know, if, it, I mean, you can obviously call him if you're not a first responder, but if you are, make sure if you're in the business of, of selling a place or buying a place coming up soon with this market, um, he, you know, w- we know that he'll take care of you because he, he took care of us very well. Yep. Tim Ryan, Remax Properties Northwest. Well, I would always make sure that anybody a looky-loo who's looking on, that they videotape everybody, make sure they get everybody, and if they can identify everybody in the crowd, that would be wonderful. Because obviously an arson investigator wants to know who did it, right? So I don't think it's unusual to ask the crowd, you know, can you tell me what your name and address is so I can come talk to you later and find out if you saw anybody? It could be the slightest thing. It could be somebody that's caught on your ring camera. It could be somebody that you saw parked here a a week or a day or a month ago, you know, so there's a lot of excuses you can use to identify everybody, but you may just catch the the person who did it, who's standing there watching it happen. I think that's probably the the easiest way that they can um, maximize the chance of solving the, the crime. If there's people standing there watching during the fire, in other words, not just the aftermath, but 
actually watching the fire burn. My understanding is that it's actual procedure for them to videotape the crowd uh, at um, most fires. Uh, and um, I wish our guy Corey was here because he's an actual arson investigator, right? Yeah, so, yeah. he's big in uh, fire investigation, arson investigation, all that stuff. Uh, Jim, I know you're, you're um, a writer-producer on Criminal Minds, and I, you just wrapped up. Uh, how long did that go for? Well, we wrapped up 15 seasons, and when I say uh, wrap that up, what I really mean is we're coming back. Uh, oh, you so are? There, wow. Yes. Is that breaking news? started already. It is breaking news. Chicago's we Greatest are... Stories broke that. There you go. We're in the entertainment, <laughs> there you go. We're in the entertainment <laughs> industry now, folks. There you go. Um, so, yeah, they the writer's room has started, and there will be um, – going to be you know most of the cast is coming back and um how did you get well, involved in that in I the first you? place 15 years in ago the first place, well i was recovering from a bone marrow transplant and um mandy had come out to to interview profilers because he was thinking about doing the show and when when he was going through the people um i guess he said to the guy who was taking her around, isn't there anybody in the FBI with a personality? <laughs> and uh, so my friend called me and asked if I would meet with him. I had to, and it was weird at the time, but not today. I had to wear a mask and gloves because I was, I had no immune system. So I couldn't be out in public without those. And so uh, I went to meet him and I was a little nervous, you know, kind of walking around in public like that. But, you know, and embarrassed, but, uh, he walked up to me and said, um, hi, I'm Andrew Vitenkin. And I said, of course you're Andrew Vitenkin. You think I'm stupid? And he just busted out laughing. We sat down and guess what? This is, this is an incredible connection because he said to me, tell me about your best case and your worst case. And I said, my worst case is not for entertainment purposes but I'll tell you about my best case. And I told him about the case of Gabri Chen, who was a six-year-old boy who was abducted. And I got a call 23 hours into it. Unfortunately, the, the, the statistics are that 44% of kids who were, kids were abducted and killed were killed within the first hour. 73% in the first three hours, 99% in the first 24 hours, and they called me uh, 23 hours into it. It wasn't uh, a very hopeful situation, and but I was able to profile the situation, make recommendations, get data back, and tell them to kick in this guy's door. And they're like, "Whoa, we don't know anything about it. what you're talking about." And I said, "You don't need to." And I argued all the way up to the chief of police and the district attorney, and convinced him that the U.S. Constitution gave them a right to kick in a door under exigent circumstances to save the life of a kid, just for searching for the kid, not not evidence of a crime and so if they kick in the door and they find the kid they can then seize the place and then go get a search warrant but if they find the kid they can save the kid and they can open up any locked or barricaded child-sized container anywhere anywhere in the neighborhood so if they can't get in they're allowed to break their way in and so that's what they did and they found him and he was alive so that was a great story Right after that, he flipped open his phone uh, and he said, it was 2005, 
and he said, um, Mark Gordon, yeah, I'm, I'll do the show, but you got to meet Jim. So they brought me out to California, and I started telling stories to the writers and to Mark Gordon, and they became episodes of Criminal Minds. That's amazing. I, I, I do remember that uh, hearing the story that, about Mandy Patankin, and that's how you got the name for your famous podcast, Best Case, Worst Case. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, ask you about this, and you've spoke out very publicly, and we we push very hard here to take away the stigma of our first responders reaching out for help, and that reaching out for help doesn't make you weak, and it's uh, we've related to if we um, got hurt at at on the job and we broke our leg, we wouldn't uh, tell you to walk it off. We'd actually go to a doctor who's qualified to repair you, and then you'd go to rehab and go through the whole process. And the same should be done for mental health. And you have been so forthcoming and honest about the trauma that you suffered as a child and it's public knowledge. And so I hope you don't mind uh, talking about it because the fact that you were able to talk about it and put it out there should open the door to other people that it's okay to reach out and ask for help and, you know, not feel that stigma on you. It's, it's absolutely true. And the fact is that I have, you know, I have been very lucky. I was one of the extremely lucky people that was able to go after the offender who molested me and, and, it's actually how I became an FBI agent. So it's an amazing story. But uh, yeah, when I was 15, I was at a TYO camp, Catholic or Christian youth organization camp. And the director ended up telling, you know, singling me out of all the boys that were there to help him close the camp. And then I became, you know, I was alone trapped there. He was my ride home. I lived 60 miles away. There were no telephones. There was no cell phones at the time. And, uh, you know, I was alone on like 6,000 acres of woods in the middle of nowhere. And he ended up molesting me and, you know, giving me alcohol and, and porno magazines. And he molested me. And I, like most victims, internalized it. I've felt like, oh, well, there must be something wrong with me. Why would he do this to me? I didn't understand it. I had never heard about it. Nobody ever told me about it, that it could even happen for it. So what I tell parents is that it's incredibly important that you understand that most children are victimized by people they know. Most children are victimized by grooming. That means where the offender does seemingly innocent things that give them access, authority, and control over a child. And grooming can be aimed at not only the child, the target, but their siblings or their friends, their parents, their guardians, and the community as a whole. And and then this grooming causes sort of a debt of gratitude in the child. In other words, he made me feel special. I looked up to him. I thought he was, you know, the the best man in the world. And I thought the fact that he was tough and that he was really demanding, I thought 
well, you know, he wants me to grow up to be a big, strong man, you know, and that is a, how a number of other offenders will operate. So what happens, though, is that because of this, kids have kids who are sexually victimized by somebody they respect and looks up to. They love the, the respect and the relationship that they have with this person, but they hate the victimization. But they won't say anything because they feel guilty and shame for having been victimized. And they don't want people to know that they are, quote, damaged goods. Well, they're not damaged goods, but they feel that way. And when they hear people say all the time on the news, well, if you sexually victimize a kid, it, it, it steals their soul or murders their soul and, you know, it ruins their life. Well, they think, OK, it's a fait complete. There's nothing that I can do now. But that's, I'm here to say that that's absolutely not true because it happened to me and, and I was able to have a great life. So it's not something that's definitely going to hurt you that way. And the best thing you can do is address it. So, but what, what happens as a result of grooming is you get compliant victimization. In other words, kids still want the things they need from the offender. And so they'll, they'll continue that relationship even though they have to put up with the victimization because that person is in a position of authority over them and they don't believe that their word is powerful enough to get this guy to stop and so or this woman to stop and so they 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 submit to it they are more compliant than you would expect and then the final thing is that Parents need to have two-way conversations with their kids, age-appropriate, about sex, sexual victimization, and grooming. They, kids have to know that this is what goes on. And if parents don't talk to their kids about sex, and you know, every time it comes on a radio or a TV show or, or the internet, they, they, they turn it off. There's, if they're talking to other adults about it, they whisper or they make sure the kids leave the room. Kids get all these nonverbals that we're not supposed to talk about sex. So they will never come forward to you, to their parents if something sexual happens to them. But if parents are calm and loving and supportive and say, no matter whatever happens to you, we still love you. We're here to protect you. Um, you know, and they, unless they have a back and forth conversation where children feel comfortable talking to their parents and they'll never feel comfortable talking to their parents about sex unless the parents feel comfortable talking to their children about sex. They can pick up on, like I said, these nonverbal and, and how you feel and how you present these topics to them. So you should learn, you should read books like the well-armored child by Joel Kostaic and, um, child lures by Kenneth Wooden. Those are good books. The Kenneth Wooden one is for younger children, and the um, excuse me, and the Well Armored Child is for slightly older children. And also read The Gift of Fear and Protecting the Gift by Gavin De Becker. Parents should educate themselves so they know how to educate their children. And the best analogy I can draw is if you live on a busy street. You would never think that you could protect your children from the dangers of that street by not telling them that it's dangerous. 
you walk them to the corner, you hold their hands, you wait till the light changes to pass, you look both ways, and you keep doing this until they can do it on their own safely. Why don't we do that about sex and sexual victimization and grooming? Yeah. We can't protect our kids. We can't enable them, empower them to help protecting themselves unless they know there's, there's a risk. It's just, we just have to get over it. Yeah, as terrible as that situation was and as terrible as what happened to you, the story, for lack of a better phrase, ha- winds up with a happy ending because you got yeah. you found yourself in a unique situation to actually put the guy who uh, abused you behind bars. Yes, absolutely. And so when I found out that from my brother that he had found way back then a number of pictures of the director abusing boys, but he got scared by the director into not saying anything. When I found that out, I went to the FBI NYPD Joint Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force the next day. And you were already um, a prosecutor they, at this time? I was a prosecutor, so it was they actually interviewed me in the same building where I work and and I basically I told them what happened and they started an investigation. I eventually had to go undercover wearing a wire to meet the guy. And I found out enough information that they were able to, after exhaustive number of interviews, they were able to find out that he had been a teacher at 13 different, different Catholic schools over 23 years. You know, he coached and taught and, and, and ran camps. And, and that every time there had been an allegation, he was confronted. He just resigned on the spot, and they let him walk down the street to another school. And it's just disgusting, but that's what happened. And they were able to identify a couple of current victims, because my case was well beyond the statute of limitations at the time. And so they were able to prosecute him, and I was able to confront him. And and he went to jail, and at the end of that case, the FBI agent who worked the case handed me an application for the FBI. and literally. I said to him, well, they would take me even though I was a victim. And he said, of course, you know, being a victim of a crime does not mean anything about you. And you did a great job on this case. You went undercover. You transcribed all these tapes. You helped us put together this great case. And we'd love to have you. And I ended up, when I was in the academy, the FBI academy, they assigned me to the very same squad that had just finished doing my case. So um, it was a great break for me, a great way to turn lemons into lemonade. And um, and I was able to actually sort of really turn the tables on the offender and, and help other kids who were victimized uh, for a good part of my career. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by Sports and Ortho. Today we have Dahlia from Sports and Ortho. Hi, Dahlia. Hey, Vince. How are you doing? Welcome back. It's been a while. We wanted to talk about a couple things here before we get started on the podcast. Number one, uh, you have a new location. We do. We have our Saganash location. So all you Northsiders, you have a new place for rehab and ortho. 
There are eight locations across the Chicagoland area, so if you go to sportsandortho.net, you can find your location that's close to you. And one of the other things, speaking of locations, if you're a city employee and you get hurt, you have the option to request sports and ortho when you're being assigned some physical therapy, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can always choose us. We're on the city plan, so... Um you know, if you want to come to us, we are happy to see you. Yeah, you're not you're not locked into whoever they send you to. You can always make a request to go to a better facility if you'd like. And Sports and Ortho is a good alternative. We think so. J- Jim, I have a question for you. Maybe we're getting a little uh, out of the realm here of what what we're talking about. But uh, as you bring all this stuff up. Why are there no repercussions to organizations when this kind of these crimes against children happen where they say, well, we did our own internal investigation and there seems to be, you know, you see on the news and stuff like that. And that's all I'm educated on. But that law enforcement really had no like if I to me as a first responder, if somebody breaks into my car, I call the police. I call right. law enforcement. I don't do my own internal investigation. Why is this an acceptable practice, I guess you could say? You know, like it's uh, completely and utterly asinine. It's, it's, I think it's criminal. And I wanted to, for example, go after the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts of America with RICO. Um, you know, Racketeer influence, corrupt organization. When you have an organization that's committing crimes, that where people in that organization are committing crimes, and the organization itself is suppressing that information and hiding that information and not giving it to law enforcement, I think that should be dealt with with RICO. Because and we talk about they, you were talking about earlier that like because my first comment was always is why didn't anybody call the cops? What. What what happened here? Why didn't anybody call the cops? But as you're taught, you know, parents can be groomed, and I'm I'm, I'm I feel you know I feel I'm not educated on that that maybe been part of what happened in the Michigan State um, mm-hmm. stuff with, with with that doctor uh, with the USA Master. Gymnastics girls, yeah. yeah. Um, you know that the parents were getting were also being groomed in that situation too. But at some point, somebody's got to call the cops. Somebody, you know what I mean, well, like. Where, yeah. Well, a number of times in that case, in that case, cops were called. The FBI was called, and unfortunately, the the supervisor who was who was in charge of the squad that was that was investigating that case was trying to get a job at the Olympic Committee, and so he didn't want to blow it up for them. He personally swept it under the rug. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard an FBI person doing. Um, in, in you know, since since I've been alive, it's just, it's horrible, and it it caused more people to be victimized, apparently, and that's terrible. And uh, look, I just yesterday I met Stephen Mills, who was he was he was in a very similar situation to me, only it was at a Jewish camp. And he he wrote a book called Chosen, a memoir of stolen boyhood. And it's coming out, I think, on Tuesday on Amazon. And 
So let, what date is that? I don't even know. Let me just see the 26th. Um, I just have to look. Yeah, the 26th. It's, it's, it's coming out on April 26th, 2022. And it, in it, he talked about, you know, he went through almost very similar things that I did only when he went to the FBI and literally it's the same squad that I went to. They never did anything about it. It was shipped off to the Pittsburgh RA resident agency and they were saying that the New York agency was going to do the investigation and New York said that Pittsburgh was going to, and nothing ever happened. So it, it really pisses me off that some of the people that, that actually I ended up working with a couple of years later had let the ball drop on this case. And I don't know why, but the key is, they told Stephen Mills that they were talking to whatever the Jewish organization is that ran these camps. They were, they were cooperating with law enforcement. Well, why was it an internal investigation? Why didn't this guy get arrested? Why wasn't he locked up? Why wasn't he prosecuted? I don't know, but that needs to be investigated. It's just as shameful he may not have been pro- as prolific as Nasser had been, but he did similar damage to kids in camp. And they happen to be boys, and boys are much less likely to talk about it than girls. And girls are already very unlikely to talk about being victimized. In the Catholic Church study, the majority of kids waited at least 20 years to, to disclose. And a good portion of them waited 30 years to disclose. When you have statute of limitations that are three to five years, it's it's completely ridiculous. Is that what the statute of limitations for uh, that? It was at the time. It's been changed? Yeah. Well, in many cases. So federally, it's now now when the victim turns 25. All right. So they've, they've extended it. And... There, New York City, for example, did an extension for civil cases recently where they just dropped the statute of limitations and anybody could come in and file a lawsuit against any organization that protected somebody who sexually victimized them. So, so a bunch of law, a lot of lawsuits were filed during that year. So it's just, I would really recommend that people read Stephen Mills' book, Chosen. Because and then and then write to the FBI and write to their representatives and make sure that this isn't happening in their own town because any youth serving organization is going to be a target for child sex offenders to try to get jobs there to try to volunteer there to try to be around there any school or or or, or team or or organization where there's going to be children and there's adults that are interacting with children is going to draw some, not all, obviously, but some bad people, people that smile on your face, people that do extraordinary things to quote, help kids because it gives them access and authority and control over children. So for their sexual pleasure and parents have to open their eyes about this. They have to be vigilant 
and they have to have a back and forth conversation with their children about this. Well, Jim, I, I didn't mean to take us off the rails in that conversation, but <laughs> that's okay. I had, you, I had the guy on the line, and I had the question in my head for years, and so I thought I would ask. No problem. But here's the problem, Jim. Okay. If you don't have the answer as to why, then we definitely have a problem. Yeah. So, if you're going to start another topic, I just want to say the the, the psychological research project that Ted Kaczynski was a subject of at Harvard University was MK Ultra, and he was he started Harvard at 16 so he was very young and he already didn't fit in and this probably exacerbated problems that he had but he at some point made a decision that he wanted to kill people and he set about the rest of his life doing exactly that and he was not a good person no matter what happened to him in mk ultra well that whole mk ultra project with the cia is a complete it reads more like a fiction and nobody would believe yeah. that the stuff that they were doing that they would actually do to people they were they were dosing prisoners they it all in an attempt to see if they could psychologically um, alter somebody to basically do the CIA's bidding, and right. there was one they had uh, they went to the zoo one time and they gave a full grown elephant it was something like a gallon of LSD just to see its reaction. I mean, it just completely died. Who thought oh that God. was a good idea? Right. Well, and that's just one little tiny thing in this whole rabbit hole that you can go down when you start going down the research of that MK Ultra and the CIA and how they keep recruiting. They would they would basically recruit these scientists from these like social dinner parties. It was just it's right. just <laughs> a, a, amazing. But uh, uh can you walk us through the process Jim of uh when you were uh, an active uh, profiler, because my understanding is that you guys couldn't uh, just throw yourself into a case. You had to be asked by a local agency, and then you guys would take the case. But uh, is it well? Actually, that, that work? That's the case in some in some cases. It, see, uh, at some point, Congress said, "Look, you know, in child abduction cases." We want the FBI involved right away, so we had concurrent jurisdiction. Um, in in serial killer cases, and they defined that as three murders or more in different events uh, by the same person, uh, that we also have concurrent jurisdiction with that, whatever the local jurisdiction is. We're polite, though, as an agency, and you know we will we will you know request cooperation um, from them. Uh, and most of the time we will do, you know, we will work with them on these cases. And also a lot of different agencies got involved, uh, you know, through the internet on, in child pornography cases, even though they didn't have a mandate in that area, other federal agencies and many local agencies, they had task force and so forth, but the federal laws in most cases, are so much more extreme. In other words, the punishment can be a mandatory minimum of five years or 20 years 
or more for producing child pornography, for example. So you want Whereas them to be the local crime. You want them to be tried under federal law in those instances, right? Yes. So they'd want the FBI yes. to come in just to maximize the sentencing. Right. And a lot of times the locals will use us as a hammer. They'll say, look, if you want to fight this, fine, but we're going to the FBI and you're going to go away for 20 years or you could plead guilty to this local crime, you know, and that happens all the time. And what sucks about it is, you know, and the, the issue was raised recently with the new Supreme Court justice who was just nominated and approved. Um, you know, the fact is that many times or a number of times she gave minimal sentences, departed from the sentencing guidelines lower on cases of child pornography. And she just didn't get that most people who collect child pornography and trade it are sexually interested in children and it reinforces their arousal pattern. And it, and actually the studies show that somewhere between 57% and, and 85% of those offenders who just, who we just know about child pornography collecting that they all have also already molested children, but nobody has disclosed, nobody knows about. So it's a really horrible thing that they're treating these cases as if they're eh, victimless, victimless crimes, but they create a market for people to actually sexually exploit children and sexually abuse children by making the, the images these are images of the sexual abuse of children. And by making those images, they're sexually abusing children. So it's not a victimless crime. Are you guys, it is, is there a study showing that this is more like a, treated that way. like a gateway crime that you could kind of like take it yes. out that far? It's a gateway crime, right? It's a gateway crime, but it's also a crime that continues on as they continue to offend against children. It's not something that they just do and they move up. They continue to collect child pornography and trade it and all that stuff, you know, as they're actually molesting children. I have to get to what people have been asking me when uh, I, I kind of mentioned that we were going to have you on. A ton of people mm -hmm. want your opinion on, I don't know if you've watched the Netflix show Mindhunter. Are you familiar with it? I, I when I I'm came, very familiar with it. I came in, when I came and visited because I read the book. I read John Douglas's book, and that whole series is based on John Douglas's book, Mindhunter. And uh, I remember asking you in California. I don't know if it was just because we were kind of rushing to get into the studio, but uh, I asked you like John Douglas touts himself as the one who basically formulated the whole criminal profiling. Uh, in that book. And what's your opinion on the whole thing? Is Do you find that to be true? Well, well, Douglas, I don't know if he takes credit for starting it. Um, Roger Keaton, I think, um, is the first one. Dick Alt, um, I think those two people uh, preceded John. But John is the one that got it, got it officially credited in the FBI. And he raised a lot of uh, he had, um, you know, the skill and ability to get the director on board. And so he, he should be credited with having really made it official 
in the in the FBI. But um, and he's he also was incredibly skilled and gifted at profiling and put a lot of his life into it. Um, you know, but then Robert Ressler and Royal Hazelwood and Pete Merrick and Ken Lanning and you know all these Jim White. Uh, you know, there's all these other legendary profilers that you know sort of came in. Uh, you know shortly after John and so forth that did amazing things. So um, I think, you know, I mean, he, he was, he's, he's a charismatic, um, very dedicated profiler and he has, you know, he's done some amazing things. I mean, one time he said, you know, the guy's going to be driving a beat up old green van and, and he's going to have, um, you know, some kind of uh, disfiguring thing on his face, and he's going to be wearing a three-piece suit when you arrest him with every button button. And, you know, and when they found him, he had a beat-up green van. He had, you know, one of those hair lips, you know, from when he was a child. And so he, he was, his face was disfigured. And, you know, but he answered the door in his underwear, uh, so because it was three in the morning or something, but but they told him to go upstairs and get dressed, and he came down in a three piece suit with every button button. Oh, that's crazy. So see, that's that's um, the cool yeah, stuff was, that that people relate criminal profiling to. Yeah. And do you get when you guys go to court? Do are they prosecuted on the information that you guys provide? Because my understanding no, because is that profile, you guys have a have a hard time with that in court. Well. Yeah, the profile is an investigative tool. It's not something you have to like get the physical evidence to convict him or the eyewitness testimony. It is just to point in the direction when you have, you know, when you don't have DNA or the, the, the gun or, you know, blood evidence, whatever, you know, that's why they come to profiling because we use the behavior to reverse engineer back to the type of person who committed the crime so you can whittle down your suspect pool. But you know, and sometimes it's very specific. Sometimes it's more generic, but it helps catch the person, not convict the person. However, profilers don't just profile. And so, for example, I was an education witness in a number of trials. In other words, I taught the jury and the judge about how sex offenders operate, how child abductors operate, um, how their what their effects on their victims are. And so that when they heard the evidence in the trial, they can hear it with an educated ear and see it with an educated eye so that they understood things. It's no different than somebody coming in and teaching about, you know, drug paraphernalia and, and drug practices, because most people on the jury don't understand how drug transactions are made or what that little piece of aluminum that was passed between this guy's hands and that guy's hand, what it was. Um, so you, you, you're allowed to educate the jury on these things because they're not within quote, the ten of the average juror. So there, there is a, a big demand for people in the behavioral analysis unit to do those, that kind of testimony because it helps, it helps the jury understand. This episode of Chicago's Bravest Stories is brought to you by the Frontline Team. Corey, 
you know so much about mortgage brokers, I can't even begin to discuss it. And what I love about these guys is that they they pretty much they stick to the golden rule, just like us, Vince. Um, something that that they have said over and over again is that if they if they would do it for themselves or their family, that's the golden rule that they stick to when it comes to lending to, to individuals. So, again, these guys are just class act guys. Um, we, well, it's a veteran-owned company. Yep. It's like like anything else in the fire department. You you have a guy. So these are your guys. If mortgage, if you're in need of a mortgage, if you want to refinance or something like that, these are the guys. They've done a bunch of work with uh, other first responders. They know what's going on. And you get to work with guys like Joey Matthews, Josh Hill, uh, Local 2 Zone, Tom Kelly, Ivan and Danielle. Where can these guys get a hold of uh, Frontline Team? So we got their phone number, and their phone number is 630. 630- 534-2900. You guys can also email them at the frontline team at the federal savings bank.com. That number 630-534-2900. I hope. Is that a 2900? It's close. <laughs> Text them just to make sure first. Um any any type of picture, really, they'll, they'll accept it. <laughs> Uh, again, make sure to check out our guys over there at the Frontline Team. <laughs> that one did not That's go well. some cuts. That did not go well. In regards to John Douglas's uh, career, did, was there ever a time when you were profiling that you used the information that he had gathered? Because that was a big part of what he did in the beginning of the BAU was just gathering all that information, looking for that commonality between serial killers. He went out and he had that long questionnaire that he gave to like Ed Kemper and uh, every serial killer he could get his hands on. Did you use that information uh, in your career that was gathered by Yeah, sure. But it was not just him. I mean, Ressler and Douglas and uh, uh, Hazelwood and Lanning, you know, and Dick Alt, all these guys went out and did the interviews. They did about 38 of them. By the time I left the BAU, I think our number was up to 1,500. So we continued that research. We expanded upon it. We made it more empirical rather than anecdotal. And But we certainly relied on, on the foundations that they created. Um, John also was one of the co-authors of the Crime Classification Manual, which it's a little dense and difficult to apply, but it, that you know, it talks about the different typologies of offenders. And Ken Lanning specialized in in that with respect to sex offenders, and and you know, it it's it's something that we kept building upon. And of course, we use that every single day. So it's like now the institutional knowledge of the BAU that gets passed on. When you start in the BAU, you get promoted to the level of supervisory special agent. You can you compete to get into the BAU. There's only 25 slots and 14,000 agents. But, you know, you compete to get in. And when you get in, you go through like a 480-hour course, uh, one on, most of it one-on-one with, you know, incredibly gifted experts from around the country and around the world. 
you know, Dr. Park Deep taught, taught us abnormal psychology. Uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Hare taught us psychopathy. Dr. Callum Shan taught us neuro-linguistic programming. You know, all these things. Um, and you had to be able to teach one course, you know, to others. So I taught um, equivocal death investigation, where you don't know if it's accident, suicide, natural, homicide, or undetermined. And so, you know, you do that, and then you have a two-year apprenticeship where you you work with other senior profilers on cases. And then if you do well enough, you get a certificate saying you're an FBI profiler. So uh, that was that was that's the way that you do it but there's a lot of training and and then everybody had to have a research project and my research project at first was kind of was basically swept under the rug because i said i want to write the behavioral analysis manual and and they said no we can't publish that we can't (laughs) tell everybody what we do these were the old old guard guys and and I said, if you want to be a legitimate profession, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to have your DSM. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychological Association. And that's how they became a, an accepted you know, science. And so they, it, took, it took a lot of guys getting retired for me to be able to pursue that. But it was a very long, drawn-out process. And literally, you know, over, over 12 years that I was there, I mean, we we basically only approved a glossary of terms and and the more the the history of how profiling was done and and then also you know just the the, the barest of descriptions of what what we did. So I hope somebody continued that process, but I don't know if they did. Well, one one last thing. And I I thought about this too after um, reading uh, John's book is how come you guys don't believe that a serial killer can read a book like John Douglas's book or Rustler's book and use that to get away with uh, continuing without getting caught for doing serial murders? Yeah, I've had the same questions asked about criminal minds because these offenders are not, you can't learn to be sexually attracted to someone's severed leg by reading a book about it. You can't. These are things that are are needs and desires of the offender. They're intrinsic to that person. This is why we can use profiling to reverse engineer the crime. It's this, we see the behavior exhibited at the crime scene and we work our way back to the type of person who would do that and this way and, and his skill level and his, and his sophistication level in, in criminal sophistication and forensic sophistication and, and whether he's organized or disorganized. I mean, a perfect example is this guy who, who killed this woman in Queens recently. It's a terrible case. He stabbed her about 60 times in the neck and put her body in a duffel bag and dragged her down the street and dumped her on the side of the street. And, I mean, you know, uh, people were like, oh, you know, uh, how, how are they going to find him? Well, one, the guy is not criminally or forensically sophisticated. The, the rage that he exhibited shows that he has either a personal relationship with this victim or she represents somebody he has a personal relationship with and had a lot of ha- hate, hatred towards. 
but he also used the knife from the scene, so he didn't plan this. So this is not a serial killer that came in and did this. But most importantly, he moved the body from the place where she was killed outside into the public in front of cameras in the neighborhood and dragged her down the street, leaving a trail of blood back to the house and dumped her in the street, which means he spent more time with the body than he needed to. Why would he do that if he didn't have a known relationship with that victim? Why? He would have just, if he broke into that house and killed somebody there, he would have gotten away from that house as quickly as possible and away from that body as quickly as possible. But the fact that he dragged her blocks away from the house in public means that he increased the risk of him getting caught a thousand times. And in fact, that's how he got caught. So he, he, he leaked out information about himself that he didn't even know he was leaking out by moving the body. But these are things that when you're not a sophisticated criminal, you don't have the wherewithal to think through at the time, and you don't realize you're telling us something by doing it. You're panicking because you know her husband's going to come home tomorrow, and, and they're going to find her there, and they're going to be looking for anybody in her circle. But if she's found dead on the side of the road somewhere, then maybe it's just a random person who did it. Who, well, you who would you say feel... the most sophisticated criminal you... Yeah, can think of uh, based on your profiling. Who is the, the Hannibal guy? Lecter? Hannibal Lecter. He was amazing. He was an incredibly <laughs> well written character. And I met I met Anthony Hopkins and talked to him about it and and asked him how did you dig deep and find this person in you? He said, you know, my wife asked me the same thing. But but anyway, well, because um, that I character think, is a conglomeration of a bunch of serial yeah. killers, right? Yeah, definitely. But I'd say I'd say the most sophisticated one um, may not be um, the most well known. I mean, I don't like to give these guys uh, a platform. You know, I don't celebrate the offenders. I I try to give the victims their voice back. But you know, there's two guys. One one they're both geniuses. They both had extremely high IQs and. Um, and they killed a lot of people. And, you know, um, I mean, you know, one of them's name is Spangler and one of them's name is DeBartolaven. But again, I don't like people, you know, giving these people a spotlight, even though they're both dead now. Um, I just don't like doing it. I mean, that's not the reason I did what I did. And when I was working, I forgot their names. I tried to forget their names. You know, I didn't ever really care about their names. Once they were arrested, um, I cared about the victims. They're the ones that I did the cases for, and, and my colleagues did the cases for. That being said, I know uh, we uh, we're, we came up on our hour here, and I know that on best case, worst <laughs> case, you guys are a stickler. You guys have that time mm-hmm. clock going. Yeah, Vince told me about, you know, there's going to be a strict 30-minute guideline uh, for this episode. Yeah. I said, there you go. Not so Chicago's can we split team. it into two? We can, we can split it. You can split it into two. That's what we do all the time. I'm well, it I'm was serious. Uh, well, it was amazing talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, making the time for us under your uh, obviously busy schedule. Congratulations on your the second coming of Criminal Minds and everything else. Yeah. Um 
where the where the devil belongs on Audible, uh, the Manhunt, uh, Unabomber, uh, Netflix, the they call me is it and they call me God the DC sniper case no call this call me God uh, call me God my book yeah my book which is available on Amazon which tells my story but in the form of a novel is called Without Consent uh, and um, and I have like thirteen titles from XG Productions on on Audible. Um, and, and they're most of them are doc, crime documentary series, but there's also one called out of bounds about sports. And, uh, there's one called, am I dating a serial killer about, uh, <laughs> you know, people who, who have questions about the people that they've been going out with. And actually some of them are funny, but some of them were serious. And, so those are all out there. So anybody who, you know, has Audible or you can sign up for free, you know, for a 30 day trial. But uh, we have a lot of titles up there and I'd appreciate it. And I also appreciate it if you get Stephen Mills book, Chosen, a memoir of stolen boyhood. It, it can be difficult to read about, but this is how you protect your kids and kids in the community. You have to understand how these offenders operate. And how and their effect on on the victims that they left. And the so podcast that started this relationship, best case, worst best case, case, worst case. Please say yeah. hi and to Francie when you see her. I will tell her I tell will. her I miss and her I, and uh, Maureen okay. too. <laughs> okay, and I have another podcast called Real Crime Profile, and uh, we, me and uh, Laura Richards. Uh, who is also a behavioral analyst from New Scotland Yard, and Lisa Zambetti, the casting director for Criminal Minds, uh, is is uh, also one of the co-hosts. Yeah, we have over 400 episodes out. Uh, and we talk about profiling, and we talk about cases that are in the news, on TV, and in movies, and and uh, series, and uh, it's. So, yeah, we go deeper behind behind the scenes uh, about all those cases and shows. And then I also host Locked Up Abroad. Uh, I think two seasons of that out uh, uh, based on the TV show Locked Up Abroad. Yeah, the, so, the, when you watch Locked Up Abroad, the, the take-home point is don't keister cocaine. <laughs> try to get it. <laughs> and try, I think try there's other, other things you shouldn't do, too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank well, you. Thanks, guys, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. All right. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Craven Stories is also brought to you by Illuminated Brew Works, located at 6186 North Northwest Highway, next to the car wash. This place, obviously, one of our favorite joints. Uh, you, you guys can make sure to uh, find them on their website, ibw-chicago.com. Illuminated Brew Works, ibw-chicago.com. Um, this place, obviously, this was one of no, this was our first live show, right? Yes. Vince? Yes. Yeah. So 
awesome, awesome place. And guess, guess what's guess what's back? Uh oh, what's back? Astronaut oh. Juice. Oh, she's back. Astronaut Juice and me and Steve, we love that trust. Trust. Trust is awesome. Um, yeah, I mean the place is just cool as hell. Um, we love just hanging out there. We love popping in. Uh, they got they got fun stuff going on there almost every night. I mean, were they? When's their trivia night? Tuesday is trivia night at Illuminated Brewworks. Yeah. Also, if you want to try some of these beers, they're they're breweries right there, literally twenty feet from where you're drinking. And if you want to try something, they'll give you a flight. Uh, try a flight of beer and really get a feel for all the beer that they have in that place, and go find your favorite. Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, there's not. I, I can't think of any beer off the top of my head that I've gone in there that I hated. I mean, everything's awesome. Yeah, so. we've crawled out of that place, man. <laughs> we've crawled out of that place. It's so good. And, and we will again soon. Yeah. So, Illuminated Brew Works. <laughs> the opinions and views are that of Chicago's bravest stories and their guests. They do not necessarily reflect the views of any municipal governments, fire protection districts, fire departments, EMS, or law enforcement organizations.